The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Mompos, Bolivar. That's five hours south from Cartagena, following the Magdalena River. Uh, along to Mompos from Cartagena. So this is episode 381 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you to all of you that continue to tune in every week. Our numbers are increasing. The series on the Paro Nacional protests has been incredibly incredibly popular indeed. That's uh, drawing us in a lot of new listeners, and I think also Colombian listeners, uh, sharing the information in English to their friends around the world. So we hope to be able to continue to provide information on that front about what's going on in Colombia. I wrote a piece just uh, out this Monday in the Globe and Mail in Canada about uh, some of the myriad of problems and challenges facing the current government and indeed whoever comes in in 2022 after the elections. So, And so, of course, talking about that a little bit, we'll be uh, discussing in the next segment of this show with journalist and investigator Matthew Charles. Those of you who are Colombianists will know Matthew because he well, writes for just about every publication out there and makes documentaries. And we'll be talking about his most recent project, which comes out, so this is a sneak preview, if you like, uh, his most recent project, which is called Operation Berlin. And it's out on June 25th, so that's this Friday at 4 p.m. And it's an animated documentary about one of the kind of most recognized but least known battles or operations by the Colombian military against a column of the FARC guerrillas that contained a startling amount of children in their rank and file. So not only are we talking about human rights abuses from the part of the military, but we're also talking about human rights abuses uh, on the part of the FARC too by this forced recruitment or recruitment of minors. And Matthew is uh, joining us from Bogota and You'll bear with him, of course, and I know you'll share your well wishes with him because he's only just out of hospital after a week of being interned with COVID. So he survived and he's out and he's talking to us and sharing a lot of information about an incredibly difficult investigation to make this documentary called Operation Berlin. So do check it out. I will be posting the links 
online and all of our social media platforms so that you can watch it. I have seen it. It is hard-hitting. It is informative. And there are some very, very high-ranking interviews in there too. So making it worthwhile to learn a little bit more about something that took place in 2000, 2001. That's under the presidency of Andres Pastrana. A final note to say that next week, Emily Hart will be back and giving us her excellent news reports. We have missed her these two weeks. And again, thank you to all of those out there, all of those that are out there who have signed up to support us on Patreon and make the Columbia Calling podcast far more sustainable uh, for me here. One man show and of course with Emily Hart too. Uh, so it has been great and thank you, special, special thank you to Sarah Cashmore for her uh, contribution as well this last week. So uh, I'm going to sign off now and we'll be back in the next segment with journalist and investigator Matthew Charles giving us quite an incredible uh, interview and conversation about Operation Berlin. So thank you for listening. Don't go away. And we're back. This is Colombia Calling, episode 381. I'm here in Mompos, Bolivar, and my very special guest, Matthew Charles, journalist, investigator, intrepid reporter, is in Bogota, Colombia. And let's just say how pleased we are and how relieved we are that Matthew is out of hospital. He was, uh, well, he was hospitalized with COVID and unsurprisingly for a couple of weeks, three weeks, but he's out now and, uh, well, in the after effects of COVID, but he's uh, kicking and screaming and ready to talk to us <laughs> about a really amazing project that's released on the 25th of June. So this week, Matthew, welcome on the Columbia Com uh, Calling Podcast once again. Thank you, Richard. It's good to be back. It is. You were on on uh, episode 216 some years ago, and we talked about your intrepid journalism uh, uh, investigating and spending time with the ELN guerrillas and also the problems that you encountered. I believe there was a machete held to your neck somewhere mm -hmm. inland from, well, further east from Caucasia when you were investigating paramilitaries. Uh, mm -hmm. Your projects haven't stopped there. Now, this project that we're talking about that we're going to focus on today is it surrounds an animated documentary i would say is what you've done on operation berlin now this is a very unknown military operation that took place in late 2000 uh, and we're going to discuss the the issues of child recruitment by the FARC and, of course, official figures by the military. So we're playing off both sides here. Uh, there's a lot of confusion around this. So could you give us just a bit of background then on Operation Berlin? Yeah, Operation Berlin was a, was a military uh, well, a military operation that took place between uh, November 2000 and January 2001. Um, in Santander and, and Norte de Santander against a columna uh, of the FARC, uh, which was called the Arturo Ruiz uh, uh, columna. Um, it contained uh, 362 rebels, but interestingly um, and shockingly, 141 of those were children. Uh, and the, the military uh, attacked this, this, um, this group and there were several uh, deaths. Um, but there's a lot of confusion around how many kids were killed, uh, how many were injured, how many are still missing. 
Uh, and, you know, we see reports in the, in the Colombian press all the time, and the, there has been a hell of a lot of confusion around the numbers. But according to the investigation we've done with numbers from the FARC themselves and from Medicina Legal, um, there were 78 deaths in this mobile column. Uh, 28 of those uh, were kids, so we're under 18. Um, and sorry, this is COVID brain coming in. That's all right. Uh, we, we understand totally. But if I jump in then and just say this is done on behalf of the Truth Commission, they came yeah. to you and said, we need to investigate this so it comes up and so therefore it's explained before, I guess, the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz? Yeah, the, the Truth Commission were looking for creative ways to gain testimony from, from former child soldiers mm. um, because it was an area in particular that they were finding challenging and especially with young former child soldiers. Um, their strategy had been to kind of do interviews and when you're working with kids, you really need to do something a little bit more creative. And so we came up with this project and applied for funding from the, the Global Challenges Research Fund in the UK. Um, so it's a project with uh, the University of Leeds, with Universidad del Rosario, with the Truth Commission and with uh, Ben Poster, which is a, a school and community on the outskirts of Bogota for former child soldiers and, and uh, child survivors of conflict. Uh, many of the survivors of Operation Berlin uh, were uh, sent to Ben Poster after after they had uh, you know uh, demobilized and so kind of spent their teenage years studying and living in this community and are still very much part of this community and doing a lot of work in, in recruitment prevention um, and so we worked with them and, and found out some you know interesting facts for example the military has always said it didn't know that this uh, mobile column. Of, of rebels had kids in it until it started the battle and still it and until it started to attack them. Um, but we found the military intelligence report um, from I think uh, you know four months before Operation Berlin um, that showed they did know. They showed that there were in their words approximately 150 kids in this mobile column. So they did know that before they launched. Uh, the operation. Now, the, the, the kind of legal ramifications around that are quite complex, mm. but it's more than a legal question. It's a moral one as well. You know, do you want to attack uh, a, a group of rebels knowing that you are likely to kill uh, children and teenagers? Um, but the, the army has completely, it's important to say that the army has completely denied that. They, they, they have denied the kind of existence of this uh, report, if you like. But that's something that we found and also talking to one of the survivors, the source of that intelligence was a young lad, 16-year-old, that decided to escape uh, from, the, from the mobile column. So he escaped, handed himself into the police, was interrogated by the police and the army. And so that's the source of this information. So they, they knew uh, that there were kids in this column. And it's important to stress as well that this, this column was formed uh, in 2000 in San Vicente del Caguan. So at the time, that was in the, the demilitarized zone. And I think it's no secret that during that time, there was a lot of recruitment uh, by the FARC uh, of young kids that were living in this area. The three, the three survivors that take part in our film were all forcibly recruited um, in, that, in that zone. Um, and then this mobile column was formed 
and marched uh, 800 kilometers, which I think is about, you know, 500 miles uh, to Santander. Their, their goal was to reach Catatumbo, where they were to attack and reinforce uh, existing FARC units in Catatumbo to take on the paramilitaries. Um, but, you know, they, as I say, they never got there. According to figures from the FARC, um, only 118 of the 362 arrived. But there are still big questions today about, um, you know, if only 28 miners died, where are the rest of them? Mm. Um, we know that there were uh, 27 below below the age of 15 in, in, in the ranks. We also know that there were 114 between the ages of 15 and 17. Um, and so just from the numbers, it's clear that there are still many, many, many kids missing. Uh, and we've spoken to families searching for their loved ones. And, and, and it's just heart-wrenching. Um, you know, we know that there are some bodies uh, buried as... as, as um, uh, unidentified bodies buried in, in the cemetery in, in Bucaramanga. Um, we know that they exhumed eight of those bodies uh, in 2017. Uh, apparently, according to the Fiscalia, those bodies are still here in Bogota uh, with the Fiscalia. Uh, what are they doing here? Why are they here? Um, they, they took it. We spoke to one mother whose daughter um, was recruited in Mesetas Meta, which again was part of the uh, demilitarized zone in 2000 she was taken um, and she was in the, the daughter was um, uh, killed according to other survivors this daughter was killed during operation berlin um, but the mother doesn't know where the body is now the fiscalia took dna from her in 2015 um, they messed it up let's say, politely, um, but wouldn't go back to take a second sample. They said that she had to travel for that. Uh, and she doesn't have the resources. She's never had the resources to travel to get the, to, you know, to have the second sample done. Um, so, the, you know, the question is why, another question is why is the Fiscalia uh, taking so long to, to investigate this? We know that they want to exhume another eight bodies, um, so we think, we know that there are at least 16 in, in the cemetery in Bucaramanga. There could be more, um, but they can't find them. And what happened in, in, in Bucaramanga was they decided to build kind of an outdoor gym where the cemetery was and had to move some of the bodies. And so during that removal process, it looks like some of them have been lost. Um, so it's one big mess. Uh, and in the documentary, we try to clear up uh, some of those facts. There's a lot in what you just said there. Of course, I'm, I'm struggling with the idea of these young kids in the rank and file of the FARC, perhaps one of the most heinous uh, issues that needs to be dealt with in a truth commission and before the special jurisdiction of peace. And uh, I just, I thought, kind of start with, how, do we know how young the youngest uh, member was because it one there's one testimony in the documentary where a, a kid says yeah, I was nine years old you know I was not and I mean that is terrifying it's I you know I don't want to bring it personally but it's that is absolutely terrifying to think of a nine-year-old being marched I mean, it's, it's kind of like it, it, I, I, I you know a, a march to the gulag almost isn't it up and over from Arauca all the way up uh across the Santanders, San Vicente, as you say, they started. And I imagine it's called Operation Berlin because it's near the uh, Paramo, the Berlin, I, I suppose, which is where now 
we're having Venezuelans dying of hypothermia walking over that, so you can only imagine the issue. That I, I'm curious, sort of on some of the intricacies here, where did you find the report that the, the, the military kind of deny the existence of? Oh, I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. It was a key question. I, yeah, I'm uh, sorry, I can't admit to that. Okay. Um, yeah, but we, we've, we, we, legally, there, there are so many problems that we've encountered with, uh, with this investigation. Uh, firstly, the army has never wanted to cooperate. In the film, we interview um, uh, General Rangel, who was uh, a key figure in the, in the, with the government in the negotiations with the FARC during the peace process, but he was also head of the army during the operation, during Operation Berlin. Um, and we were very lucky to be able to interview him uh, to try and clear up uh, some of these facts, or at least hear the army's side, you know, point of view. Um, but the army itself as an institution has failed to cooperate with everything that we've asked them. And we still have a couple of cases um, in, in the courts waiting for their, their verdict on, you know, freedom of information requests that, that we did. Um, uh, and because of, this is one of the other things with Operation Berlin, the official narrative of Operation Berlin is that it was a huge success. The army managed to dismantle this column. It prevented them from arriving in Katadumbo where, you know, violence could have increased or whatever. Um, the army decorated uh, more than 2,000 soldiers as a result of this operation. Uh, but the, the alleged human rights abuses, um, you know, the the the... Uh, assassination of unarmed children that allegedly happened according to many of, of, of the survivors and not just survivors, but also local residents mm. um, uh, who incidentally, when we went to, to, to work in Surata, which was the main municipality affected by the, by this operation, 20 years on, the people there are still terrified to talk about what happened and still terrified to give their testimony. And I think that, you know, that, that, that says a lot about the Colombia we, we still live in today. Um, but these, these alleged human rights abuses, as I say, as have never really been dealt with and have never really been tackled. And so um, it's something we try to do in the film, and it's definitely something the Truth Commission and indeed, the, you know, the HEP, um, the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, is, is trying to, to clear up. Yeah, I, you know, for those who are um, in, you know, who do not agree or against the HEP, they really are going for the jugular in these things. It's not, you know, people say, oh, it's impunity this, impunity that. No, they're going for both sides. Uh, they're going for, for everyone in this. I mean, this is a clear case, especially as we, we dealt with this a few weeks ago as well with the investigator and journalist Andres Bermudez from justiceinfo.net uh, talking about the fact that the FARC themselves admitted that kidnapping was an official policy during the height of their conflict is a huge deal. This was, you know, they, they admitted it, so now we're waiting for what the HEP will come up with. You know, we're waiting for that. And for me, that's a huge deal that you get the, the secretariat admitting to this. It's no longer economic, what do they call them? Economic, uh, uh, like hostages or something. I don't know. Uh, so that this is coming forward. And in the documentary, you've got, you've got Timochenko talking. You've got the, the head of it talking. Of course, there's, you know, there's, there's space for... Um, 
different interpretations of his speech, but again, these guys are masters of uh, manipulation, <laughs> masters of it, they can play you. But, I mean, he claims to not have known, I think, how young some of the people were. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, they know because it's happening in Kawan. Yeah, I mean, one of the, you know, the, the FARC have always said it was their policy never to recruit anyone under 15. Uh, well, you know, this documentary proves, I mean, there's there's a hell of a lot of evidence out there that, that mm. that's just not true anyway. But this documentary also proves, you know, we have testimony from a nine-year-old, um, well, he was nine-year-old at the time uh, when he was recruited. Um, and and so, you know, legally, it, it, it's, a, it's kind of a complicated situation because under international law, strictly speaking, um, the age of, of recruitment is 15 mm. uh, under the Geneva Convention. But there are several international treaties which have, you know, which increased that age to 18, um, of which Colombia uh, is a signatory. But, uh, you know, obviously FARC doesn't, doesn't, doesn't recognize that. Mm. Uh, so it's a, it's a complicated uh, legal argument, I suppose. Um, but in some ways it's irrelevant because even though they adhered to that, they say that they adhered to that policy, um, again, we ask them, well, why didn't you sanction anyone mm. in uh, the, the Arturo Ruiz column where there were 27 kids below 15? Mm. Yeah? And, and I think the answer, if I'm not mistaken in the film, is it just wasn't a priority. Yeah. Yes. And of course, you know, they were, not that it would make it any better, but they were very poorly trained I mean, these were kids. So there was, you know, uh, this is what comes across as well, isn't it? They were very poorly trained. Uh, I'm not saying that it would have made anything any, any better to have a battle-hardened group, but this, you know, it does play into the situation that was up there. And talking about this, the, the documentary that goes on, I mean, it's animated, and I'm always a little bit uh, indifferent about animated films, uh, but especially documentaries and something dealing with something so... I mean, this is severe, something so uh, violent. Uh, but I have to say, it's not an animation that trivializes the situation. It's because it's hard going. And you have mentioned, you know, the difficulty of inter interviewing children. And, you know, you also mentioned the, the kid who, who escaped, whose, whose testimony is where the, the military got their information about uh, this column and where they were going and then for, therefore where they would attack. Uh, and there's something about the documentary which makes it more effective, animated, rather than just seeing the backs of heads, you know, of children. Uh, how did you come, I mean, how did you come to the conclusion? How did you arrive at this, that we're going to do this this way? Yeah, well, I, I've worked with animation before, and as I say, when you're working with kids, although they weren't all kids, we have to say, mm. Um, you have to find a creative way to to engage them. Otherwise, you'll be there a very long time and maybe not 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 get anything out of them. Um, and you know, again, working with testimony that is based in the past is always a problem for a filmmaker because you know how can you how can you show something that happened uh, twenty years ago and there may not be you know, archive, especially if it's a very personal story. I mean, there is archive of Operation Berlin in the film. Um, and so animation is, is, has been commonly used as a, as a method to, to kind of, you know, represent those stories. 
but it's not you know i think we should say it's not kind of a disney animation mm, yeah <laughs> um it's kind of experimental uh 2d artistic with with various materials with paints um you know with with, with branches with wood um uh, there's there's lots of different styles involved including digital animation as well um and it was important for me because I really hate to see uh, people that we may classify as, as victims kind of interviewed, you know, with, like you say, with the backs of their heads, with their hands or just their eyes, because that's how we're used to seeing um, criminals. And I think if you if you treat them both the same way, I, I don't know, I just I think you, you kind of criminalize the victim in some way. And um, it, I don't know, I, for me personally, it's just something I don't like. But the challenge is, obviously, you never really see the face of the person. And so much comes through the face of the person. Um, but obviously, in this story, we're dealing with anonymity as well. So we, we couldn't ever show the person's face. And I think that's just something we have to, we have to live with, that you will always, you always lose a certain amount of emotion in that sense. Um, and again, with this film, we had to use voices of actors. Mm. So the testimonies and the stories are real. They were written by survivors. Um, in in workshops with us um, and with former child soldiers, I have to say that you know we we used kids um, that have survived conflict uh, or that were former child soldiers, young uh, former child soldiers, to work with the survivors of Operation Berlin to create the script, to create the stories, and then they were voiced by by actors. Mm. And and. One of the things that uh, these, I guess he's 16, the, the, the child, the child, the boy that, that got out and, and obviously yeah. was able to furnish the uh, armed forces with the information, he did say, you know, he was taken into a room and just interrogated. There was no um, psychologist. There was no one from the child welfare there. And so it sort of, it sort of runs... Uh, it, it, totally in an accordance with how things are done here first, and I would say that applies to today. In you know, the Minister of Defence calling children máquinas de guerra, you know, in the, the dreadful um, circumstances that took place some months ago, uh, and I, I, I can't, off the top of my head, remember the total details. But the, it, I, was it in Guaviare? where uh, a number of children were killed who had been recruited into the FARC dissidents and they were bombed by the military. And, and, and he just said, well, these are máquinas de guerra. And it just sort of seems that there is this one narrative surrounding child recruitment and a reality. And that kind of brings me to my next point, is that in the documentary, there's a lady now who must be in her around 30 or so. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, she's, she's sitting there and she's talking about we we can talk about forced recruitment, but if anyone wanted to say why we were forcibly recruited, the the, the blame lies firmly with the the state and the government because of the lack of options. You know, I've never been in a situation of this type. I've never been born or, or, or grown up on the fringes of Colombian society uh, with you know, zero opportunities or so on. But I mean that was very hard hitting that point. I, I, perhaps you'd like to comment a little on it. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's a, a lot of kids say that they were not forced, they were not kidnapped, um, but they chose to go, mm. um, which is a narrative 
that the government um, and its agencies completely uh, failed to accept. They say that all recruitment is forced. Um, and I would disagree. I mean, I think it depends what you mean by force. All recruitment of youngsters, of minors, is illegal. Mm. Um, but it's not all force. Because I think if we say that, we deny the state's responsibility within that equation. Um, because, okay, a kid may think that they want to join because they are escaping difficulties at home. Um, they, their parents may have been killed by another armed group, uh, a, a common story that you hear when talking to, to, to former child soldiers. Um, they may not have food on the table. They may not be able to study. There are no schools. And in all of these circumstances, the state has some kind of responsibility. Um, and so if we think of forced recruitment as just the, the FARC or any armed group, uh, kidnapping kids and giving them a uniform and a weapon, and, and that's it, then, then we're really oversimplifying things, and we are certainly denying the state's responsibility. Um, you know, with, with regards to the kind of structural factors that that play a part, i.e., uh, poverty, uh, uh, lack of education, and, and, and lack of uh, other opportunities. Mm. And we take our I take our conversation now to Bukaramanga, and of course, being the the closest, I would say, major city to to the event, or, you know, between Bucaramanga and Pamplona, I would suppose. But Bucaramanga, where you say there's eight potential uh, bodies, potentially eight bodies, well, you have the do you have the the facts? Well, there are at least sixteen, we think. Wow, uh, possibly more than twenty. Wow. Um, yeah. And and there's a gym that was built there, or a sports, uh, you know, a re- uh, something or other. And the bodies have been moved. I, I mean, this is getting into the realm of conspiracy theories here, but do you think it was uh, could have possibly been planned? Uh, who knows? Yeah. These bodies were first taken to the the, the military base of the the, the Quinta Brigada, the, you know, the fifth the fifth brigade in Bucaramanga, and then they were taken from there to um, to the cemetery. Hmm. Uh, and, and just dumped in these graves. Uh, the, the cemetery says, you know, there's one there's one body per crypt, but documents from the Fiscalia show that that's not not the case. There were at least three and four in some of them. Um, and then the cemetery was kind of moved, and bodies were taken out and shoved in other places, uh, and and really treated badly with a lack of you know complete lack of disorganisation. Um, is there some kind of cover-up on behalf of the institution? I think, yes, there, there always has been. Um, were they involved in kind of moving bodies around? No, I just think it's the incompetence of, of the local authorities uh, and the fact that they don't care about, you know, th- there's a whole cemetery of unidentified bodies in Bukaramanga, all vic- most of them uh, victims of conflict, and some of them have been there for years. So they're just, they, they basically just moved them um, without any kind of respect uh, for these bodies or, or their families that are still out there and don't know that their loved ones are, are kind of uh, buried in this place. So yeah, I think it's uh, um, it's it's likely, um, but you know who knows. Yeah, I, I, just, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned earlier about the fact that the, the kids. I think Operation Berlin shows failures on so many levels from on behalf of the the, the state and its institutions. First, the army. Uh, it doesn't matter if it was legal, but morally, it should. It, in my view, it should not have attacked 
these kids. And we see, like you say, the army hasn't learned from that. We've seen the Air Force involved in uh, in raids that have killed children in, in the past year or so, in, 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 in I think in Kakatan, in, in Guayari. Um, but the fact then that these kids were taken and interrogated by the army without the presence of a, a social worker, without the presence of a psychologist, without the presence of anyone that could help you know, defend the rights of the child, um, is, well, is, is probably not surprising, um, given the, you know, the place that we, we, we both live in. Um, but I also think this was the first time, really, that, that, that the Columbia realised that kids were being recruited on such a scale. You know, forced recruitment has existed. I think the first registered case is from 1962, hmm. uh, 1963. Um, so it's always existed, but it really came into the public domain with Operation Berlin because of the. it was televised. There were there are pictures of bodies of children, bodies and bodies of children being pulled from helicopters um, and, you know, laid in a line uh, at the, the military base in Bucaramanga. So this this shocked uh, Colombians, I think. But the state wasn't prepared. The state didn't know. ECBF, you know, the agency that deals with uh, kids and children in Colombia, wasn't prepared. It didn't know how to deal with this. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the kids were then taken and they were treated as criminals. They were put in prison. You know, they were they were given classes, but these kids were put in prison. They were not taken into um, home, foster homes, or they were not. There were no attempts to reunite them with their families. They were put in prison um, and eventually released. And some of them, yes, did go and live with foster families. Some went to live in, in kind of state-run facilities. Um, but I think this was the moment when the Colombian state realized that they needed some kind of system to 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 deal with. Uh, demobilized uh, children mm. uh, because I think they started to realize well we we can't treat them as common criminals or we have to treat them differently and I think that was the beginning of of that process but it still happens today you know the army if if the army um, captures a, 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 a an insurgent that is under the 18 years of under 18 years of old they are legally uh, responsible to hold to, to to hand over that child to ECAF immediately um, and there are several cases that I know of this year where that has happened and ECAF has not been given access for two weeks while the while the army interrogates this poor kid uh, because they want all the information they have on, on the armed group what they do where they are they get all of that information and then they hand them over to ECAF so the, the some of these um problems let's say uh still still very much exist mm. well let's, let's put that then let's let's draw it to the present day i mean because we've been talking about something that took place you know 20 odd years ago now um but bring it to the present day because your investigations will have found uh the the levels at which recruitment recruitment of children continue because you're you know you're going through all this now uh, I suppose they were at their highest uh, during the 1998-2002 sort of Kaguan when it was the uh, demilitarized zone for the FARC under President Pastrana. 
But 2016, we had the, the peace accord signed. Uh, wh where are we now with regards? Because the, obviously the government will say, oh, you know, these are narco gangs. We've got FARC dissidents. We've got ELN. But where are we now with uh, regards to recruitment of children in Colombia? Well, since 2016, the numbers the numbers um, have the, the numbers fell. Let's say in 2016 from what they had been. Uh, we're talking about um, you know maybe in 2012, 2013, we're talking about 270 up to 300 cases a year that are recorded. Yeah, I think it's really important to say that the vast majority of cases are not uh, either reported or, or recorded. So we're dealing with numbers that don't necessarily represent. Well, they definitely don't uh, represent the 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 kind of um, extent of the of the issue of the problem. Um, but from 2016, the numbers have steadily uh, risen mm -hmm. each year. Um, and now, if you look at the official figures, they've steadily risen, and we're kind of back at pre peace uh, agreement levels. So 2014, 2015, again, kind of 270 cases, let's say, give or take a year. Unofficially, from the fieldwork that we've done, because aside from this documentary, uh, we've for the past two years I've been leading an investigation about about this issue for uh, recruitment and participation of kids in conflict and crime. And if you work in, uh, you know, if you talk to communities in say Valpers, where I think the official figure um, is four um, for 2017, uh, and our figures are kind of, you know, in the twenties just from speaking to the, the, the community who say they, you know, they don't report it because A, they're scared of reprisals from the armed groups and B, there's no trust in the state authorities. But our investigation showed that basically there, there's between between 91 and 96% and of cases are basically not, not reported. And we found that cases are higher in places where there's big rivalry. So, for example, the Bajo Cauca, where the Urobenos and the uh, Caparos have been involved in, 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 in fierce fighting over uh, their illicit economies. Recruitment there has, has kind of gone through the roof um, as each group tries to, you know, um, increase its ranks and, and be the stronger. But interestingly, we've also found uh, increased numbers in places where uh, let's say new groups or especially dissident factions of the FARC don't necessarily have expertise of the local area. So, for example, in Valpez, we found that a lot of indigenous kids are being recruited because they understand uh, the geography. They can navigate the difficult terrain of the of the Amazon. And so they've been recruited to help the FARC shift uh, their, their, their goods um, through to through to Brazil, mm. so um, and, and 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 a similar case in 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 Caquetá. Uh, so, and interestingly, the, the group recruiting more. Who do you think that might be? Oh, I don't know. I was going to ask you that, but I want to say ELN. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to be honest, to be honest, it's really uh, again the numbers. Are, it's difficult to know which group's doing which, but you have to kind of map it by which group is operating in that in that area. So they're not particularly the most reliable of figures. Um, but it, yeah, it's a close call to be honest. Mm. Um, ELN uh, dissident FARC uh, are at the top of the list. So, so what's the government doing to stop this to protect Colombia's sort of youth in these in you know these uh, off 
off-grid parts of the country. What's the because, yeah, I, I, you know, you worry about places like Suacha on the edges of Bogota mm-hmm. and stuff where things are you know, obviously quite, uh, you know, quite difficult. But in these fringe, I, mean, I mentioned it before, these off-the-grid areas of Colombia, what what is the government doing? Because there has to be some effort. There was must have been something written up in the peace accord that this, you know, this needed to be addressed. Yeah, well, it's interestingly interesting that you mentioned Bogota. I mean, we think that this is a kind of rural phenomenon, right? That this mm-hmm. only happens in marginalized kind of conflict-ridden communities. But the statistics show that there are really high numbers of cases in, in, in Medellin, in Monteria, and Bogota. So it is, it is an urban uh, uh, phenomenon as well. Um, what is the government doing? Well, um, I suppose it depends on... <laughs> <laughs> on your on your stance, I mean, I would say not very much. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 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 kind of presidential commission uh, for human rights has has launched a kind of a prevention program that I think is is led by the first lady, and it's in partnership with UNICEF, and it's called uh, Sumate Por Mi, and it's basically a, a program that they do in schools in 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 difficult areas of Colombia. How it works, I'm not sure. Um, they're very, very secretive um, about the, about force recruitment. Um, I mean, one thing that has shocked me is the in the previous administration, um, the presidency counted uh, cases and and specifically monitored this issue. Yeah, uh, because it has to. One of the things is Colombia is obligated to the United Nations to monitor the force recruitment um, under this new administration. Well, not so new anymore. Um, they haven't done that. They they haven't monitored the cases specifically. They haven't taken their own data. They've just worked with um, data from the Defensoria del Pueblo. Yeah. So the, the kind of, you know, these alertas tempranas that the Defensoria issues, these kind of early warnings that show that something is happening that are meant to uh, provoke or encourage some kind of response from uh, local and national state institutions. Uh, so that basically the the, 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 the the office of the presidency that is responsible for this is basically going just on this data rather than collecting its own data. At least that's what they've told that's what they've told me. Mm. But I do know that they have some kind of traffic-like system. So there are certain areas that are red, certain areas that are amber, uh, and others that are green. And I also know that there are 86 municipalities um, that have been identified as a priority uh, for this issue. Um, and in the kind of data that we've got comparing the, you know, the municipalities with the 86, um, it seems that those 86 that they're working in are the 86 where the where the problem is worse. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. And so I was not aware of this at all. I'm curious now for as to why Monteria, um, because I'm not far from Monteria right now. I imagine it's the, you know, illegal armed groups here, uh, uh, let's say the the not the ELN so much up here. I would think it was other groups like Camarapos yeah, the, and Urabeños. Yeah. Yeah, it's the yeah the Urabeños or the the, the Gaitanistas. The Gaitanistas, because of course all of the access up to Urabá. Yeah, oh. but there's, I think there's two reasons. Speaking to um, local officials in Monteria, there's there's two things going on. One is often some of the cases from um, the south of Cordoba, so from Tierra Alta, um, are registered in in Monteria because ah. the kid is taken out, and then that's where the statistic is registered. Um, but also there have been cases. Um, 
of the the Gaitanistas or the Urabenos um, taking kids from Monteria, from very poor communities of Monteria, to go and fight in the Bajo Cauca, yeah. in the kind of war that we mentioned earlier with the, with the Caparros. It's just, it's, it's actually terrifying to think, you know, we sort of signed off on the 2016 peace accord and obviously here everybody wants everything rapidly and I understand why because, you know, it's been, you know, the country has been living through this, this conflict and this nefarious acts for so long and they expect it to be resolved from one day to the next but that figures are rising once again. I mean, and you've got a government being secretive with the numbers whoever comes in next is in the 2022 presidential elections has a certain amount on their plate and you know this is a country crying out for the truth commission crying out for uh, you know families needing to know the locations of their loved ones who've been buried in unmarked ga- graves thrown into uh, you know uh, paupers graves in in in, yeah. in cemeteries across the country but coming back to the, the documentary again, this Operacion Berlin, why is it so unknown? If there were, you know, there were images that brought it home to Colombians that kids were being used and they're being lined up, you know, in, 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 cadavers, uh, victims of war lined up and there's press images. Why is it one of the least unknown operations out there? Um, I, th- I think, well, I think if you mention it to people, they have some kind of memory at the back of their, their brains that this, that they saw this um, 20 years ago. Um, but I think there have been so many other uh, atrocities and operations since then that, you know, there's, there's, so, there's so much to remember, if you like, and it gets lost in, 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 in the other, among other atrocities. Um, people have heard of it. And, and people associate it with the FARC mm. and the FARC recruiting children. And there's no doubt about that. But what they don't associate it with are the, the alleged uh, human rights abuses that, that, that were then um, perpetrated by, by the army. Mm. Um, we've heard very little of that. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, the, the institute, the, the kind of post-conflict institutions, you like the Truth Commission and the, the HEP need to get to the, the bottom of and, and you mentioned the, the units of the missing people as well. Um, and uh, interestingly, they uh, the FARC had a meeting with them recently. Uh, so surviving kind of commanders of the FARC that were in Operation Berlin um, have been very cooperative with this institution in terms of who was there, who was killed, who disappeared, mm-hmm. to give them a better idea of actually who is missing, because that's one of the issues that, um, that, that we have with Operation Berlin. We just don't know how many people are missing and where they might be. But the FARC has really valuable information because the FARC collected kind of CVs of everybody and they still have that information. Oh, really? um, so that is really valuable information for, I mean, it's mentioned in the documentary, but it's really valuable information for the Truth Commission, for the, for the unit, for, for the, you know, looking for the for, for missing people. It's, it's very useful information for them because it gives them a list of who was there. Um, and now we just need to look for who's no longer here with us. Uh, and hopefully we might be able to you know, provide some comfort for, for families that have been searching for their loved ones for, uh, for so many years. But on that note, I think it's really interesting that the army has so far failed to cooperate with the the, the, the unit for missing people. Mm. Um, and, you know, 
I think I think that is appalling, frankly. Well, that's it. I mean, we we have to move forwards, and to, in order to move forwards, these things need to be clarified from the past. And what worries me now is what you we were talking about Operation Berlin, and but you mentioned you know, there's been so many others. I mean, how many documentaries are you going to have to make <laughs> to get this information out there? Because, you know, it's not the only one. It's a big one. Of course it is when we look at the numbers. But how many operations are out there? You know, what has gone on in the region of Norte Santander in, in Catatumbo, which today is still lawless, you know? We don't know. Um, so I've, we have to wind this down. And I know, you know, as a, as a COVID uh, recovery patient, you're tiring. <laughs> because, I've just got into my flow, yeah. yeah. But it's all right. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, what do you hope that will come of this as you personally, investigator and journalist, um, Matthew Charles? I mean, what do you hope will come of this? And then finally, you know, what do you expect is going to be the reaction of the state authorities to this when it comes out on the 25th of June? Um, well, I don't think they'll like. It. I certainly don't think the army will like it very much. Um, but you know, I I'm not really fussed about that. I think um, what's important for me is that the survivors of Operation Berlin have this space. Mm. Um, you know, they've. They, you hear journalists talk about giving voice, and I really I really hate that because people have a voice. Yet communities have a voice. The problem is we don't hear them or we don't listen to them. Um, so hopefully now there's the, the, there's a space, there's there's something concrete that kind of uh, in which these voices uh, are, are are heard and listened to. Because um, another issue with the survivors of Operation Berlin is that many of them have never been compensated. For, for you know for having lived through for for, for being a victim of conflict um, as as victims of conflict in Colombia are supposed to be compensated many of them haven't received any form of compensation um, or not adequate compensation uh, and you know many of them want answers about these alleged uh, human rights abuses committed by the army so what the, the best thing for me would be that those issues are answered but also that the narrative of what happened around Operation Berlin is changed. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't this glorious military operation. Um, <clears throat> it was a lot more complex than that. And so the hope is that the the, the narrative that is produced by the Truth Commission uh, represents represents that based on the testimonies that that, that we've gathered. Mm-hmm. And and so then, where can we see it? Uh, the twenty fifth of June. This comes out important, important documentary, and I, I've had a sneak preview, so I can vouch for that. Uh, where can where can people, you know, my listeners out there, where can they tune in? Friday the twenty fifth at four pm. Um, I will send you a link to publish it on your on your social media yeah. because we don't have it yet. I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> um, but it will be Friday the twenty fifth at four pm. Mm-hmm. Um, will be the 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 kind of first time it's 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 been shown. Uh, and, and we're in the process of applying to various film festivals, uh, uh, etc. So. Um, there will be more opportunities. All right, perfect. Well, it will be out there. And of course, I will put it up and do a, a social media campaign. It will be on our Facebook page. And of course, I'll throw it all over Twitter and LinkedIn and everything else and all the necessary social media, media evils. But in order to get the, the, the news out there, listen... I am so very appreciative uh, of your time, especially is that now I know that you know three weeks in in hospital with COVID, and I'm I'm so very glad that you're out. 
So it was only a week. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, well, uh, you could have taken the three <laughs> weeks and, and been seen as a hero. Yeah. Uh, but equally so, you are, you've got out and you are, are on the mend. And this is such good news. And so, listen, I wish you all the best in this difficult recovery period because uh, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've yeah, got we, your taste back, your lungs, yeah. I mean, there's still pressure on them a bit? Yeah, my chest still gets very tight, especially if I kind of, you know, uh, well, I, I can't do exercise, but if I uh, walk for a long time, it, it gets tight. And my voice as well, you can hear it. Mm. <clears throat> my voice disappears by the end of the day still. All right. Well, so we won't uh, we won't make any further demands of you here. Uh, let me take this no, well, moment. Thanks for the space. Thanks for the opportunity. No, it's it's been excellent. You were you were loved on episode two hundred and sixteen with your experiences with the guerrilla groups and paramilitary groups, and so it'll be no surprise to me that the figures for this episode will be huge as well. So let me take this uh, opportunity to thank Matthew Charles for his insights and unselfish uh, uh say sharing of us of the documentary ahead of time uh, because of course it's out on the 25th of of june it's called operation berlin simply yep. operation berlin and it is about the operation berlin which those of us perhaps you know a bit more in the in the sphere don't know so much about you know we didn't live through it in the 2000s uh, here in colombia you know i moved here later than that so uh, it has been really revealing and and well it's so very important to show that both sides have um yeah, i think you know they've got to make some sort of a concession that this happened, uh, some sort of uh, concessions, the word, but the truth commission will bring that forward. And we'll, then we'll see what happens, I guess. Then we'll see how the HEP, the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz, decides to treat this. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, thank you everyone for listening. This has been a great episode 381 with Matthew Charles. Please tune in to the documentary as soon as I put the uh, link out there. It's incredibly important that we learn more about the past in order to, you know, I guess reconcile and move on with the future here in Colombia. This has been a fantastic episode. We've been continuing in an incredibly strong vein of form. Uh, next week we'll have another person talking something Colombia related. I got a few people in the past pipeline it'll be great as always thank you again to matthew charles this has been me richard mccall on columbia calling episode 381 and please be sure to share this far and wide bye-bye